now. Hey, Julie. Welcome to the Rise for Educators podcast, the podcast where we share research-based tools that relate to empowerment, self-care, and all things education. Each week, we discuss the Rise system, a model we created to make it easy to identify which self-care tools are best for you. We also talk about the ladder, a tool that connects the dots between your mind and your body. I'm Julie. And I'm Holly. We are instructional coaches and sisters-in-law who decided to take our conversations about these ideas out of the corner of our family gatherings and put them into a podcast. Welcome to episode 51. And oh, are we ever excited to talk to our guest, Dr. Michelle Borba today. Dr. Borba is an educational psychologist, former teacher, and mom recognized for offering research-driven advice called from a career of working with over 1 million parents and educators. She's a frequent Today Show contributor and recipient of the National Educator Award. She's the author of 25 books, including Unselfie, and her latest book, Thrivers, The Surprising Reason Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. She also appears on Dr. Phil, The View, CA. Dr. Oz, as well as U.S. News and World Report, the Chicago Tribune, Time, New York Times, and today we are so lucky to call her our guest on Rise for Educators. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Borba. Um, We have all earned our survivor badges this year, uh, with some of us virtual, some in-person, and some in-between. As teachers, we want our kids to transition from surviving to thriving. So we were thrilled to find your book called Thrivers, The Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. And we are so excited to talk to you about how to support our students so that they can become thrivers. So can you tell us what is a thriver? Oh, a thriver is one of those kids that every every teacher wants because it's the kid who's got that, I got that kind of an attitude. It's okay, I'll do it. He doesn't need the rescue. She, he doesn't need the helicopter. And she certainly doesn't need the trophy or the gold star. She's internally driven, has a sense of agency. But the most important thing about those kids that we now know is that they're made, not born. They've achieved skills and many of the skills we already teach. But if we tune those up, what we do is we help our kids be more likely to thrive, not only in a classroom, but also in life. And that's what it's all about anyway. Okay. Yeah, I think that's, you know, in looking forward as the year ends, this is like a really natural time for teachers to reflect and say, like, going into next year, what can we do differently to support our kids in different ways? And a big conversation we're having at school is, okay, so we know kids are going to come to us from all different places. And we're a little bit worried about, you know, the difficulties that they've experienced this last year. So as teachers, what do you think we can do to really support kids in becoming thrivers? I think the first thing is empathize with the kid. And we always do that. We, we want to teach empathy to the child. But in this case, we got to step into their shoes and go, where are they coming from? What happened to them? And a simple little win on that one would be maybe send each child uh, parent an email saying, hey, I I really care about your kid. Can you tell me one thing that happened this past year? So I'm on the same page with him. Maybe grandma passed away. 
Maybe dad's business just collapsed. Mm -hmm. What's going on in your family? You're not saying that, but you're trying to get it a bird's eye view because you may not have been able to see that little guy's face or she hear her voice to know what ha what's happening. Now, some kids, as they walk in, you can actually ask, what's the one thing you'd like me to know about you? Mm -hmm. But a lot of kids are a little not so forthcoming because they're a little concerned. The whole thing about Thrivers is it starts in a caring, safe culture. It makes no difference what's going on outside. The moment that child walks across your classroom door and inside, you're creating that culture that's going to begin to help him thrive. And certainly every child right now, across the world anyway, needs to feel safe. And that's you planting that for him. Yeah. yeah. So you did a lot of research for this book and you examined scientific studies and you interviewed, I know, a lot of kids. What was the most surprising thing that you learned? Uh, I think the most surprising thing is, first of all, to realize as I was doing it that I've never been so concerned about kids. Mm -hmm. And that was prior to the pandemic. Uh, first, I started looking at research and the research was scathing. Prior to the pandemic, one in five American kids was gonna suffer from a mental health disorder. But then I started interviewing the, the top of the top of the rest of all of the interviewers and psychologists. But then I said, let me get a bird's eye view of this and asked the counselors to give me some kids. Now, these kids had a real pulse on what was going on in the world. They were extremely well-loved kids, no problem on that. Uh, most of them were pretty affluent children, but I've never heard so many of them say that they felt empty. Many of them said they felt more like they were being raised as a product as opposed to a kid, that they wish their parents would like, you, like them for who they were and not so be so worried about which college I'm getting into. And, you know, the fascinating thing is about the same time I did a keynote with 2,500 college counselors okay. from very prestigious schools. And I asked them, what are you seeing? And they all said, there's something new about today's kids. They're very smart. You're raising a really smart generation. Their GPAs are, you know, 4.0s are now 7.3s, but uh, they're empty. They're really running on empty. And it was the same term the kids told me as well as, as the college counselors. Uh, and I began to realize the bottom line is we've, we've done a lot on the cognitive hype, but we've kind of short-sighted the how to help the kid thrive and the resilience factors. Right, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking like it's, it, we've gotten very like success oriented. That's been our focus and we've mm -hmm. lost the human side. You know, yeah. I know you talk about how how kids are resilient, our thrivers are really um, can be created. What are some, how do we help create these kids? What are the traits? First thing is we got to look at the science because we don't have time to fool around by doing anything but what the science says. What I didn't realize as I was writing Thrivers is that extraordinary scientific research that has been studying kids who have overcome war zones, poverty, schizophrenic parents, uh, incredible obstacles. And they studied the same kids. We're talking Emmy Werner, um, Norm Garmisi, um, Ann Mastin, Michael Rudder, all different studies in different parts of the world. And they studied the kids for not just one year, but Emmy Werner has been going on for 40 years and found that a large portion of them make it, but they almost always have three things going for them. Not all three do they need, but the first thing is they've got that, that trusting safe haven like a school or a classroom. 
The second thing is they've got us, the teacher who cares desperately and refuses to give up on the kid. And the third thing that kept coming up was protective factors. They've learned some buffers along the way. Once I knew that, I, my next question is what the heck are they? And let's just choose the ones that are teachable, that impact mental health, resilience, and peak performers so that we can put it all together. I, my desk became post-its and I ended up with seven because they were the most highly correlated and they ended up being ones that, they, that were needed for the 21st century. So it was confidence because thrivers have a sense of who I am, not what my mom wants me to be. They have a strong understanding of themselves. They accept their weaknesses, but they know their strengths. The second one is empathy. They have social competence. All the work on resilience says the kid has the ability to at least connect with others, not necessarily the most popular kid, but they're connectors and they've got those social skills and they think we, not me. That's a great one. The third one is self-control. They can put the brakes on impulses. And as a result, the anxiety and depression doesn't mount. They learn those coping skills. We do so much of that already in our schools with our SEL. Then comes integrity. Oh, I love this one. Because the kid has a strong moral code, and it could be the teachers that embedded in him or the parent has embedded in him, when a mental obstacle comes, he doesn't have to waver and waver. It goes, I got this because I know what I stand for. Mm -hmm. And stand up to the peer pressure that's like just crucial then comes i love this one curiosity i never realized the value of a curious kid because these kids don't let the adversity derail them they said they go okay let me figure out a way over it around it or through it they're little problem solvers mm -hmm. they're critical thinkers they they're deeper thinkers um they're not necessarily einsteins and picassos but they have this curiosity, they're more open to people and ideas than perseverance. We all know the growth mindset matters, but these kids have it. They realize that I may not be the smartest in the class, but if I keep working on it, I'll get better at it. And then I love the last one, hope. They've got optimism. They can see a silver lining. They're not necessarily Pollyannas, but they have a reality base. And as a result, they can keep the depression and the stress down and keep, uh, I can keep going because I, I think I can finally find the outcome if I just keep on tracking. And, and that's what it is. Now, the, here's the most amazing thing because every teacher's going to go, oh my gosh, they need all seven. No, it's a rare <laughs> adult that has seven. So relax. But the more you have, the better. What I didn't realize is that they have a multiplier effect. So you put any two together. I don't care. Any two is better than one. So don't just teach self-control. If you teach empathy plus self-control, you got a little change maker. You put optimism and perseverance. He's not giving up. He's going to keep on going. They multiply one another. So they amplify the outcome. They become like superpowers. Okay. That's really cool. Cause I saw that you have like your core competency or your core values that the kids, that uh, teachers can you conduct the character strengths. Um, yes. Yeah. That's really interesting because when I, when I saw those, characteristics I thought well that's a lot but it's good to yeah. know that we could almost focus in on what are the strengths of the kids that you're working with and can you choose yeah. a couple of those to really focus yeah. in on yes um, yeah well, here's the other thing is the best lessons I've ever seen every single chapter when I was writing them I said I got to prove this works yeah. so I'd find the optimum teacher I'd go into these classrooms I mean one of them was in Beirut Lebanon from uh, across the board, I'd walk into the classrooms and I never saw a program ever. I saw teachers weaving it into their lesson. 
So it's like, get a post-it, go, here's the skill. How am I going to weave it in sometime? Because each one of those strengths you'll see in your core asset survey also is made up of three skills. And I realized most of those skills are the ones that are in some of we're, we're already doing a lot of those, but we may not be doing it nearly enough or taking it up a notch so the kid can walk away and transfer it out on the playground or the drinking fountain or at home or the bus without us. And that's what we're aiming for, right. transfer. So he becomes a thriver without us. So really yeah. intentional about teaching those skills. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You know, one of the things I, I love so many things about your book um, I, this core asset survey, I was actually sitting with the teacher today and we were going through it talking about one of her students. And I love that so many of the tools in your book are just really actionable. Like sometimes you think those like that. You're welcome. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm already using it and I see really great uses going forward. We talk about identifying kids from a strength base. And I think this survey makes that like really, really... Oh. Oh, good. I, you have no idea how hard it was to write that survey. So I yay. can only imagine. It's quite, it's, no, it's but the, quite the bottom line. I started looking at the research that was confidence. And then I realized, okay, now it's up to teachers and parents to try to figure out what the strengths are of these kids. And most of the time, a kid who's struggling is going to disguise it and certainly not going to say, mom, can you put this on the refrigerator? Because they don't know what their strengths are and the research that was killing me was that all of it says that we spend more time working on the kids weakness and trying to fix them as opposed to figuring out what their strength is now that doesn't mean you're going to stop helping the kid who's struggling in math but it also means let's figure out what this kid is good at i'll give you one story on that strength survey um i taught special ed for years and i had michael michael was a kid oh, precious little guy who was always clinging to me and he, he never smiled. And I, I knew that he had a very high IQ, but it certainly wasn't materializing in my classroom. That's why he was in there because he had severe behavior and emotional difficulties. So what happens with these kids is why I put that core survey in there is because it's hard to identify some of these things or you can overlook them so easily. Mm -hmm. So one day I discovered that I happened to notice that he was drawing and he was pretty darn good at it, mm -hmm. which was a shock because he was, he didn't realize that I happened to be there or he would have covered it up. And I also knew that if I praise him right now, he's going to rip this thing up and never do it the rest of his life, right? That's exactly because it was so low in confidence. So I decided to be quiet and just smile and go like, you know, nod my head. So he saw that I did not say a thing and then find a little more opportunities for him to draw. Oh my gosh, it took me weeks. I had a parent come in and do some art lessons. And then one day, this was my, uh, he really looked like he was loving the drawing that he was doing and he was really good at it. And I remember quietly whispering, Michael, can I put this on the good work board? And I was shocked that he said, yes, I put it on the good work board. I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, don't blow this for the kit. And two of my other students walked up to it, looked at it, turned around and go, wow, Michael, you're really good at art. And the smile on his face was like, oh. I went, oh, now how do you keep instilling that? So yeah, right. it was just little teeny art projects, little teeny art projects. And then you know what happens, guys, as a teacher. Then they go on to the next class and the next class and you're just like, oh gosh. So I just would always tell the next year, next year, next year, he's really good at art. He's really <laughs> good at art. And then you lose them. You know, they go off into, oh, knows what happens. 
but I've been teaching for quite a while and you have only one moment as a teacher and that is your moment that you'll never retire the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> I got a letter from him years back and he said, uh, Mrs. Borba, I've been wanting to thank you all this time um, for putting my art on the good work board. Oh, <laughs> I'm like reading this letter going, why? And he said, I wanted you to know that I graduated from high school, which I went, oh my gosh, I was in a state of, I started painting. And guess what? I got a full scholarship to college and I graduated from college. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Then the bottom line is, and because you put my work on the good work board, and I know it wasn't because of that, he was just being nice. I'm now working as an animator in Disney Studios. Oh my gosh. It was my whoa oh. moment. Yeah. You got to find those nuggets. You got to find those little nuggets. And I hope the core survey does help you. Or you work yeah. with a parent and you say, let's work together to try to figure out your child's strengths so we can build those up in him. Right. I, I love yeah. the core asset survey. I love it. Um, because I think, I think words are so powerful and to really look at all those descriptors and pull out some, your strengths or your, or your child's strengths or your student's strengths. I, I just think words are powerful. And I think people don't, um, until you are really intentional, um, sometimes you might say, oh, it's hard to find what someone's good at, but when you read the words, it's, it kind of helps connect oh, yeah. it. Thank you. You know, and the, the other thing on those is sometimes we overlook that we're so good at finding the, the strengths in a classroom, mm -hmm. but we're not so good at saying, and, and, and when they come home, the first thing we always ask is what you, what you get, what you get, as opposed to character strengths, like what kind of thing did you try today? Or what new thing excited you? Or watch the kid to say how he learns best. All of those seem to be helping the child develop that first strength, which is confidence. So he has a clear understanding of self. And the fascinating thing is University of Chicago says, if you do that, it more likely helps the child develop a purpose and a passion. So his, mm -hmm. his mental health needs go up and he's more likely to develop that flow straight where he gets involved in something and his perseverance stretches because he's doing something that he loves. Right. So, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so self-control is a trait uh, that really stands out over this past year with students online and not in the same room as their teachers. It was obviously a, a big struggle for some kids to stay on their Zoom calls and turn in homework. Um, and it's really kind of brought forward that importance of students having self-control as that intrinsic quality. Um, what is the science? Is there any research um, about some actionable well, ways that teachers can support students in developing? Well, first of all, the actionable research on science supports exactly what you just said in terms of why we should. Yeah. There's a phenomenal study in New Zealand from the city of Dunedin who actually got a huge cohort of kids who were all born exactly around the same 24-hour period and studied them again for 30 years and mm -hmm. discovered as they grew up who was the most successful not their zip code, not necessarily their GPA, their, their self-control. Not only were they mentally healthier, managed money better, continued to do better in their relationships and their job. The, the other thing that is clear is that it is a teachable skill. I think the marshmallow experiment from way back when told us that I love that experiment, but I love the after thought of it from Stanford years back of um, Walter Michelle did it at, you know, at Stanford and what he did 
just the fast forward because we probably all had it in our insight days, but it's a clear takeaway is that it, he put a, a marshmallow in front of four-year-olds one by one and said, if you can wait until I get back, I'll give you two. Do you think you can wait? Well, who can wait as a four-year-old? But he discovered that some of them could. Now, the fascinating thing, he kept studying the same kids and he discovered by age 15, those kids who could wait and didn't eat the marshmallow and got the second one had far higher SAT scores. But the fascinating thing he then did is that his kids, his own daughters were in the same classes. He kept following the kids as they grew up, their classmates and discovered they continue to excel. They continue to be better and better and better. But the most amazing thing is about 30 years later, he realized he was wrong. He thought it was an inbred temperament. And he, now he realizes that skill one in self-control, it is teachable, but the parents had taught the kids waiting games. They taught them how to wait. And every kid, regardless if they're ADHD or have the ability to just sit there in a classroom for days on end, can be stretched a little bit if you use what I call the rubber band technique. You figure out what their current attention span is, and then you gently stretch them a second or two or three past it without snapping, and you keep stretching, stretching, stretching. What we find is the majority of your kids, you're right on the mark, have hit the COVID wall. Their energy and their motivation is what zap. They can't keep persevering because that, that multiplier effect isn't working for them. They don't have the self-control. They first need the focusing ability. So it's down to in your classroom, what control do you have? Control number one is you have routines. Kids are dramatically needing those at home. Um, uncertainty just creates stress while certainty builds it. So keep on to the routine. Do what a preschool teacher does. They're brilliant. I don't care if you teach 17-year-olds. What they do is an active lesson, then a quiet lesson, then an active lesson, then a quiet lesson. Yeah. And then what you do is you keep stretching, stretching, stretching so that you, number three, recognize who your more irritable kids are. The kids who are about ready to, it's not your whole class, but who's the kid that's going to demolish the class within seconds if he, you know, he goes from five seconds to boom, he's in the, the meltdown mode and doing the exorcism. If you watch the kid a little closer, you can spot the kid. I've seen some brilliant teachers. One teacher uses a, a, uh, an orange pen. The orange pen is on top of the kid's desk. And if it turns this way, it means I need a break. I'm about ready to melt. Some kids, they use a signal and it, they give, the teacher gives the kid permission to share he's about to melt down. That's glorious, but it's a pre-plan for self-control. Um, another one is some kids have in a, in a whole class or in a small class in special ed, it could be nothing more than a signal of your hands. And that is a zero is I'm, I'm a cloud about ready to fall asleep. I'm so relaxed. Seven is I'm gonna blow like a volcano in three seconds. They don't need to say a thing. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you do with the kid? Let me give you the greatest answer I ever heard. I was doing a staff in service and two teachers walked up afterwards and said, we're buddies. We are, we're two fifth grade teachers and our classrooms are back to back to each other. We use a white stapler. And I, I'm like, oh, please tell me what you do with the white stapler. Said, Each of us has one. I swear we do something legitimate with it. But what we do is we have a plan that if one kid walks in with the white stapler feigning like I need staples, it really means would you take the kid for three seconds? I'm about ready to need a meltdown myself. Just take it. <laughs> 
And the fascinating she says is every time the kid comes back, he's more relaxed because that teacher's in control and I needed a breather. So maybe it's first starting with a pre-plan, sticking mm -hmm. to rituals and routines, and then teaching. Uh, I, in, in Thrivers, there are dozens of self-control strategies, but the best one I ever saw was Visitation Middle School because they've, they've, got, they've nailed it. What they did is they had the counselor realize these kids were really having trouble with coping. Mm -hmm. So she went into every classroom and showed the kids how to do the right kind of breathing so mm -hmm. that these Navy SEALs told me it's a one-two breath. You deep it deep from your abdomen like you're riding up an elevator. Then you hold it and you slowly let it out, but the exhale twice as long as the inhale. Mm -hmm. What the counselor did is keep showing and showing the kids. Now here's part two. She had one of the kids in each class. She went to each class and did it, film her. Then she put it on a flash drive, send it to each parent. There's your homework tonight. Teach it to your parent, okay. which really means it's gonna be the kid learning it better. And then she convinced the principal to shave off one minute of each class so that it was five minutes of every single day kids were doing quiet time. Mm -hmm. Unreal. Suspensions went down, behaviors went down, attendance went up, and test scores went through the roof so that every school in Oakland is now doing five minutes of quiet time every day. Doesn't cost a dime and it's not a worksheet. It's just doing the same thing every single day. Find one coping strategy. Start your day with it and maybe do it over and over again. Maybe you can get one kid to be the teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Has a little yeah. more clout and credibility. Yeah. I, this is like everything that you just said is what I love so much about your book. Like you base it in science and then you show actual ways that teachers or parents can apply it. Another thing I really love is that those actionable ways, just like you told us, you know, this worked for middle school, these worked for adults, this worked for preschool, like in your book, you specify that each of those activities, you know, the, the actionable step and what age group you can use it for. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I really have to say like, this is becoming sort of my Bible right now. <laughs> I feel like Aww. everywhere I go, because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're you know, there are so many of these things that I think these traits seem a little bit, um, I guess, idealistic. Yeah. But what your book does is it makes it, it kind of brings it down to science and then action. And I think that's a real gift in the to teachers and educators. I love that they're simple and they're free. It just, you know, something yeah. just can be simple yeah. and free. I think sometimes we try to um, overcomplicate things, over tech things. Yeah. And I love like your, the 21 day parenting challenge that you have. Oh, thank I mean, you. Those strategies are so simple. The breathing, the power stance, um, just, you know, the reviewing of, a, of your day, like those basic things that I think sometimes people don't realize if you just really take the time and do those things, um, that they really, those little things add up to make a big difference. Uh, give you another story on this one. Terrytown Middle School. Okay, they did something brilliant again. What they did is that they, this was prior to the pandemic, but they realized self-control was critical. So what they did as teachers is they did kind of like pods of different kinds of things you can do to calm down. Mm -hmm. They wanted each kid to choose which one's gonna work for you. They were all free, all simple, and they're all part of Thrivers, but which one's gonna work for you? Yeah. And then what they said to the kids, okay, you 
Each one of you has to choose it. You got to write what you're going to do on an index card and you're going to take that home because that's your homework. But you know, it's not going to work the first day. It's going to take at least 21 days of practice. But change always comes from the inside out. Now, here's what they did. They then challenged the kid when they wrote it. They said, I'm going to do it tonight. They said, okay, come on back tomorrow. But wear your school t-shirt on and wear it inside out to let us all know that you've been practicing it. The following day, almost 90% of the kids wore their t-shirts on inside out and said, we're working on it. We're working on it. We got 21 more days to go. I went, oh, brilliant. They're practicing it. They've got 21 days. They know it comes from the inside out and they've all planned. This is the one little thing that's going to help me cope. Yeah. I love it. Like yeah. great way to form school community and mm -hmm. class community. Yeah. That's really great. And I, I love the, the point that you had them self-identify mm -hmm. and then pick, pick something personal to regulate. So that's really yeah. great. You know, um, one of the stories I loved in your book was this story about a girl named, I think it was Mia Dunn. And it was the, in the integrity section where it talked about like all the teachers you were interviewing for this book and all the teachers were like, oh, this student really exemplifies so many of these strengths, I think, um, so many of these characteristics. And you asked her and you, she said it was our upbringing and she talked about um, how her, her family intentionally like had this activity where they wrote, wrote down different qualities and they came up with the family as honest being the one that they wanted to um, identify with. And so she's talked about in the book how she would go out the door and her, her mom or dad would say, you know, go out and be an honest done. Um, and that really stuck with me because I thought, you know, sometimes at the beginning of the year, teachers do class mission statements and they're yes. great, but a lot of times they talk about like treat each other nicely, you know, uh, encourage a good working space. But I like your idea of taking more, maybe these more core tenants and having yeah. a classroom model that like, you know, maybe attaching something like that to a classroom. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I love that. First of all, that child was absolutely glorious. Um, <laughs> but here's some parts that I, when, as I interviewed her, because every high school teacher said, go figure out how she became such an amazingly compassionate moral kid. What the heck happened to her? And when she said, she laughed and said, it was how I was raised. The first thing she did, every teacher can do and every parent can do. She said, I remember when I was little, I walked into the family room and there was all these chart paper and marking pens. And my dad said, let's figure out what kind of family we want to be or how we want to be remembered. You can do the same thing. What kind of class we are? How do we want to be remembered? Who are we as a class? But then it was the kids coming up with it not the here's our highfalutin rules that we post mm -hmm. if they're in kid language even though believe me it's going to be the same rules we want anyway but <laughs> once we say good idea those are your rules when it's like yeah when they brainstormed them all mom ran out of chart paper she said now let's vote let's vote for the one because we can't be them all mm -hmm. that's how they came up with it and then they came up with that simple mantra but the fabulous thing is i said how did you remember it she loved and said it was impossible not to. My mother must have said it 50 times a day. She dropped me off at school. Remember, we're the honest dunce. <laughs> when I did something wrong, remember, we're the honest dunce. Well, that was an honest done thing to do. We'd be reading books. That was an honest done thing they did. <laughs> My parents said it so much, we became it. So maybe the thing is, teachers, we need to say, what are we saying so much our kids become? Or what's the single most important thing we want our kids to gain from our, our own modeling of our behavior? So that pretend it's June, the kids are walking out the door. It's not going to be the lesson in the worksheet they remember. It's not the bulletin board. 
They're going to remember those simple little routine rituals that we do over and over again. And that's what is also going to reduce their stress, build them hope, and those create the memories for the kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so great. That's just, I, you know, I, what I keep hearing from you is like, choose one or two things. We can't be yes. thing. Repeat, you know, yes. structure, intention. Yes. So, okay, so you yes. are, I've written all these books and done all this amazing stuff. So how do you, Dr. Borba, take care of yourself? Do you have routines, structures, self-care? Oh, um, how do you I keep I have great going? friends. <laughs> okay. Friends do it for me. Here's what, and, and the bottom line to this one is, everybody's got to find their, what's their go-to? What is the one thing that you really need? Because it's going to be different from everybody. You know, to tell a person you should take a bubble bath is absurd unless the bubble bath works for the person. <laughs> yeah. What works for you? And then ask yourself during this COVID, what have you been missing that you still could add to the plate? Mm -hmm. Maybe it's, I, I used to go for walks. Okay, you can still do that, but bring the kids. Yeah. There's yeah. certain things you can do. For me, it's friends. And then came physical distancing. So what I do is every Saturday, on the dot, I Zoom with about three buddies. And it's amazing. Girlfriends, we become deeper in our relationships just because it's, you gotta be there. It's 11 o'clock Saturday morning, let's do it. Um, I think that's the piece when one of the character strengths is empathy. Mm -hmm. I think what we now realize is that that is a superpower and we're all missing it. And that's why our mental health needs and stress is so high. We haven't had each other. Oh, for sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. As stress builds and empathy goes down, burnout is the outcome. You're feeling burnout? Yeah. So you got to build that back into your, how am I going to find that moment to help me thrive? Yeah. So you're in, social, you're in a rise system, you're a social connector. So we have yeah. our, you know, we, we have a, a self-care system rise, which is reset your body, your inner voice, your social connections and your environment. So you oh, love it. That's wonderful. <laughs> So yeah, so yeah, the, we have those sort of four pillars. So obviously social is- um, Social is one, reading is my other. I can get lost in a book, really wonderful. And that just helps me rebuild. Or certain books are just, right now I'm going through Hemingway. I just saw the PBS special and I oh love uh, watching. Uh, I, it, writing is lonely. <laughs> so <laughs> it's watching him just spend all day long coming up with one sentence and you realize, yeah, that's me. So it helped me feel like, okay, I'm not so alone on that one. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. So are you working on another book? Are you always writing? Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, oh, what I am doing is, um, I'm the fascinating thing I love to do is now take this and make it so it's international. Mm -hmm. So almost, uh, at least once a week or two, I'm doing an international group. Um, tomorrow night, I'm doing Hong Kong. Last week, it was the Philippines. Um, Ireland just uh, contracted. Saudi Arabia just oh contracted. God. Instagram. The, what you learn is that every single teacher is saying they're worried about their kids. I don't, Vietnam called in. What do we do about the stress of our children? This is not a US thing. This is everywhere. Oh my so God. the strategies that I offer are international strategies and the interesting thing is thrivers just got voted as the top read in hong kong oh my because god because they realize it yeah yeah it, my heart went oh my gosh but you but it's okay it's that's knowing that well it's where wherever it is the science matters 
We yeah. know that our kids are struggling. Anthony Fauci has already told us that the next wave is going to be a mental health pandemic with our youth. Are yeah. we prepared? That's what we've got to be. We've got to realize that it's not all cognitive folks, that you're going to get the cognitive going up, but first you got to get the mental health and resilience intact. These same skills we're talking about are all in your side. Teachers, the same skills of those seven. Also, you'll see the science say, help your kid become a peak performer and a better learner. So it's not either or, and I think that's what we've done. We've gone to one side too far, or we've gone to the other side too far. It's a balance between the two because the end product is you want the kid to graduate and you want him to be able to thrive Mm -hmm. now and later. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. Dr. Borba, this was amazing. Like you are just, we talked about this, it's just so warm and fun and real. And we're just so grateful that you had this conversation with us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. We're all on the same page together. We are so in sync. I'll add one thing that's fascinating. The state of California just adopted thrivers for a read aloud across the state of California. So what they're doing, they said, I'm doing eight different book clubs any parent can come and join it free. They don't even have to be in California. But they said, we've got to get out of this mode that it's only teachers doing this, or it's only parents doing this. The more we start talking the same talk together and reinforce, I don't care what it is you do in the classroom, but somehow get it out so that the parent is reinforcing it. Get yourself a class website and maybe post it every day. This is the one skill we're working on this week. Or do what that counselor did. That was brilliant. Here's the flash drive and I'll go home and put it on your computer and you teach it to your mom or dad so that we can all help each other. Oh, thank you for that. Because, you know, the, what, what, what I discovered, these, I had a lot of aha moments writing this book, is that the same strategy is critical from toddler to teen and for us, the teachers. Right. But you got to age specify it or even age specify it. Some of us have much younger kids, even though the kid is 15. So it's like, how do you stretch it so you scaffold every idea?